7.7%. Please be aware that the thunderstorm warning will remain effective until 9.30 today. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Back Chat. I'm Janice Wong and your guest presenter is Mike Rouse. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Janice. On today's program, we're talking about China's latest space mission. The Shenzhou 16 spacecraft has successfully docked with Tiangong Space Station after sending China's first civilian into space. And as they're orbiting around the Earth around 400 kilometers above the surface, the crew will carry out all sorts of experiments from quantum physics and further verifying Einstein's general theory of relativity, to even probing the origins of life. So what's the significance of this latest milestone in China's space program? How fast is China's aerospace technology developing? And how long will it take before we can send a Hong Konger into space? After 9.45, we'll look at efforts by the WWF and the Chinese University to revive Hong Kong's corals. Let us know what you think. You can leave a message here on our Facebook page or email us at backchat.com on chk.hk or give us a call on 233-88266. Now to uh, kick off our discussion this morning, we have on the line Professor Quinton Parker, the Director of the University of Hong Kong Space Research Laboratory, and Dr. Su Bing, Research Assistant Professor at the Polytechnic University's Department of Aeronautical and Aviation Engineering. Good morning, Professor Parker. Good morning. And uh, good morning, Dr. Su. Good morning, Jenny. Thanks for joining us on the program. Um, so first of all, Professor Parker, how significant would you say China's uh, latest space mission is? I mean, it's the first time it sent a civilian to space. Yes, I mean, that's the most significant part of it. I mean, it's uh, this is Shenzhou 16, so there were 15 prior, you know, and the um, Chinese space station in its original configuration is now complete and so this is just another mission in, in terms of a crew changeover and you know and then getting the space station ready for its main purpose which is basically as a huge laboratory now the fact that they've now sent up uh, a civilian um, you know, Guoyi Hao Cho, who uh, spent uh, two postdocs working in Canada, so he's been exposed to, to Western processes, and yet this has not prevented him from becoming the first... Um, um, the first civilian uh, from an, uh, an engineering aerospace uh, background of scientists to go also to go into space. And I think it's just uh, the start. I think it's just putting uh, a flag down, if you will, about where this whole um, Chinese space program is going in the future. There'll be a lot more um, civilians going into space because you need them. You need uh, civilian scientists with the right STEM background, the right understanding of all the delicate and sophisticated scientific equipment and experiments that need to be run on board the space station. There's only a limited number of uh, crew at this stage. I mean, I think it'll grow in the future as the space station grows in size, as we just heard. But um, it'll be the start of, of what will be a, a cohort of uh, civilians going in space, including, we hope, a couple from Hong Kong. <laughs> and they'll be civilians when they go up as payload specialists themselves. Right. So, so what we're seeing is, uh, would you say it's a more mature space program that China has right now? Already. I mean, it's already, uh, it's mature, but it's got to that stage very, very quickly. If you look at the, how long it took the Russians and the Americans in the 60s and 70s, etc., to develop into what we see today, China had look, a long, uh, was way behind, and it's now almost caught up, I would say, with the major spacefaring powers. If you just look at their achievements over the last uh, two or three years in particular, it's been nothing short of astonishing. And I think it's taken a lot of Western observers by surprise to see how quickly China's capacity 
capacity has emerged so successfully in such a short period of time. Right. And uh, Dr. Sue, um, Professor Parker, we were just talking about how uh, the mainland has, has a more mature space program. And now, uh, what about its aerospace technology? Um, how would you describe it? I mean, how much progress has it made over the past few years? Well, I would say um, amazing. I would say the achievements are really amazing. You know, China's aerospace technology is under development at a very steady pace. Steady pace. But we also see uh, really a quick progress since 2016. And in particular, we have seen so many innovative progresses in the past several years, such as in the completion of fatal navigation satellite systems in 2020, which is actually a very important space infrastructure for aerospace development. And China also finished the third phase of lunar probe program in 2020. And by the way, actually, Paul Yu also contributed to this mission by developing um, a lunar service sampling and packaging system. And now the fourth phase of China's lunar pro- program has started. You know, Chang'e 6, 7, and 8 are also to be launched in coming years. And as planned by 2030, a NANDI mission, NANDI mission could be achieved. So another amazing achievement is the Tangong Space Station. So that's why I would say China's aerospace technology is steady, fast, and innovative. And I believe it's, it's going to be becoming faster and faster in coming years as we have so many achievements. Right. So, so steady, fast, and innovative. Um, that's how you describe a mainland's aerospace technology. But how does it compare with other countries that also have a, um, a space program? Well, absolutely, some other countries like U.S., like Russia, they studied the aerospace program earlier than China, right? But as I just mentioned, China is developing um, aerospace technology is a very steady but faster pace. And in my opinion, a big strategy um, for China's space program is to develop aerospace technology with several parallel and huge programs like manned space flight, deep space exploration, etc. So this is really uh, greatly stimulate the aerospace technology development compared to other countries. Uh, Professor Parker, good morning. Good morning. Um, I'm a, a bit baffled by some of the relativities here. Um, I'm, I'm old enough to remember the first moon landing. Um, and yet oh, now right. America is talking about sending a man to the moon again. But that's a few years down the road. They seem to have taken their foot off the gas for about 50 years. Well, you know, um, yes, there's all sorts of reasons for that, I'm sure. And, uh, you know, your premise at the start, I understand. Um, so in, while America, you know, the space shuttle program was a great success, but then it stopped. Uh, the geopolitics around the world is getting increasingly complicated. There have been lots of wars and, and all sorts of things have been happening around the world in the meantime since the fantastic uh, Apollo missions. You know, I look upon it, you know, for me, it's like basically not just the world has, has uh, taken the foot off the gas, but where has been the greatest next technological leap? I remember, you know, from Wright Brothers to the Saturn V was uh, 50 years and from the Saturn V to you know, uh, uh, Elon Musk and that great big starship is, is another 50 years, but they're still just uh, uh, lighting fuel under an explosive device to send something up into space. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there hasn't been that same technological leap that I was hoping for when I was a young boy, you know, when I thought by the 80s we'd have bases on the moon, etc. But that hasn't happened. But now China has emerged 
just in the last uh, 10 years or so, um, you look at the first space flight, manned space flight from China, and now where they are today, the Chinese space station's up and, and running, and it looks very sleek and almost zen-like, and it's very efficient and effective, and, you know, you can even dock with it uh, almost three times faster. You can dock with the International Space Station. And so things have come on and leaps and bounds from the Chinese side, and I believe this is spurring on now uh, the, the Western side, uh, the Europeans and the Americans, of course, and also the Indians. Indians are getting in on the act, and don't forget, Japan is also an active space program. So lots of nations are building capacity. Uh, the technological breakthroughs in terms of taking an ounce of matter into orbit hasn't really changed much. That's the problem. I think, uh, you know, I'm looking for, you know, the space elevator of Arthur C. Clarke or, or, you know, some electromagnetic propulsion system that puts something into orbit from the ground with no fuel. So these are the kind of advances I'd be hoping for. You'd be hoping for some big leaps forward. Uh, uh, and the technology. Um, you raised a good point there because uh, you mentioned India, but is also UAE doing things now? Yes, indeed. Well, the UAE has, uh, you know, have National Space Science and Technology Center at Al Ain, which is uh, where the main uh, university of the UAE is. They've also got an astronaut on board the International Space Station. Uh, I think Saudi Arabia have now set one up as well. So the, the, the sort of Middle East is, is really seeing, you know, as the oil uh, not just runs dry, but as the world moves away from fossil fuels, hopefully at an accelerated rate, to be honest, um, they've got to look at uh, the relevance and, and wealth and, and future of their, of their city-states and their, and their countries. Countries. And I think one of the areas they recognize is, uh, is the new space economy, which, of course, by the end of this decade will be worth at least one trillion U.S. dollars. So I think, you know, the impetus is there for them to invest in this new emerging horizon of, you know, of the space economy. All right. And Dr. Sue, what's, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, uh, Professor Parkey was just talking about uh, how he hopes to see a more advancement or further advancement in uh, technology. I mean, how, how does it look? Excuse me. Excuse me. I just missed a little bit. All right. Uh, Professor Parker, earlier he was just talking about how he hopes to see further advancement in uh, the technology used in these uh, space missions. I mean, what are your thoughts on this? Well, um, you, know, I, you know, just right after the Central 16 uh, launch, you know, Tesla and SpaceX CEO Elon Musk said the China space program is far more advanced than most people realize. I actually absolutely agree with this point. I'd like to um, take Beidou Navigation Satellite System, for example, because I'm actually doing research in navigation. Um, in navigation. So, you know, Beidou Navigation Satellite System is quite different from other satellite, uh, satellite navigation systems like GPS, like GLONASS, like uh, Galileo, because BDS and Beidou Navigation Satellite System has three different types of orbits, like um, uh, GEO, IG, IGSO, and also medium Earth orbit. But GPS only has um, media, um, MEO satellites. And actually another interesting service of BDS is that uh, uh, we can communicate with BDS satellites. I, I think it's quite useful in some emergency cases. So we call that short message communication service. So that's, um, I would say, on many aspects, uh, Chinese aerospace technology is advanced. All right. Uh, we're now also joined on the line by Dr. Sarah Webb, a research astrophysicist at uh, Australia's Swinburne University of Technology. She's also the mission director for the Swinburne Youth Space Innovation Challenge. Good morning, Dr. Webb. 
Good morning. Thanks for joining us on the program. Um, we've been uh, talking about uh, China's latest space mission, and I mentioned at the start of the program that uh, there will be uh, many experiments carried out during the mission, um, from quantum physics to further verifying Einstein's uh, general theory of relativity to even uh, probing the or mm -hmm. origins of life. Now, on Einstein's theory of relativity, Dr. Webb, hasn't that been proven uh -huh. many times before? I mean, for example, I, I, oh, I mean, I'm no expert, but uh, for example, discovery of black holes or, or detection of a gravitational yeah. waves. Um, do you expect the Taikonauts to come up with a, a novel way to prove it this time? Yeah, so you are absolutely correct. General relativity is probably the most successful scientific theory we have. I believe it's been proven in seven different types of studies that we can prove that it, it holds true and it seems to um, describe the, the laws of the universe when it comes to gravitation. Um, what's really interesting, though, is in space, so even space stations that are only 400 kilometres or so above the Earth, we're able to still really accurately test the curvature of space and time around the Earth with something called an atomic clock. Um, and they do this on the International Space Station as well and as well as some other satellites. And what happens is time technically ticks uh, a little bit faster the further away you are from the main gravitational bend, so from the Earth. Uh, so uh, I guess that is what they are testing. And more data is always important, even if we've tested it before and we've got one result. It's always really good to have a multitude of results so we can hone in on uncertainties and errors on that type of data. Professor Parker, what are your thoughts on that? Well, absolutely. I mean, you know, this kind of uh, um, sort of atomic clock test was, was done originally, um, you know, between different heights of a building in American University. And then we're sending uh, atomic clocks up on, on, on airliners that were flew for a very long time being refueled around the Earth comparing to those on the ground, you know. And all of that uh, just endorsed uh, Einstein's theories. And so this is just, you know, to, to get that extra decimal point or so of accuracy in the way these tests are done. So they're the kind of tests unknown. We've done them kind of similar tests before and this is just to to confirm the results to get greater precision because what happens if you know you have different tests and uh, then you saw a tension between the results uh, between different tests where mm -hmm. the fifth decimal point didn't agree anymore you know, it's like suddenly that becomes a tension. You say, well, it should agree. It keeps, yeah. should keep agreeing on the way down. So this is why there is some motivations, I think, is, you know, to get the precision higher and higher in, 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 in you know, in the proof of, of Einstein. Dr. Webb, can I ask, what is the next big area you would like to see progress in? When it comes to human spaceflight or just in general with fundamental physics? In, I think in general, but obviously with a space flavour. Uh-huh, yeah. I think some of my research really uh, interests lie in biological processes in space because we, we are earthbound creatures. Um, most biology thrives here on the Earth. And when we take it up to the ISS and what we do with some of our experiments that we run out of Swinburne, we find that it behaves very differently. And this has been tested so many different times. But it is so fascinating to try and understand why some biological systems like bacteria can thrive in space, can really, really thrive in the lack of gravity while they're experiencing microgravity, whereas some other more complicated biological systems such as ourselves, our, our human body, really struggles in microgravity because it's not what we're used to. Um, and I think that is quite fascinating and I think a really important question to try answer as we do more manned space flights to the moon and then eventually to Mars as well. Because the, the prolonged effects of weightlessness would really get tested, wouldn't they, on, on the way to the Mars, for example. 
Absolutely, yeah. And Mars is a very long trip. Uh, so we, we send astronauts up only for a few months, maximum a year at a time, really. And what we find is that the one of the most concerning things is the lack of muscle density once we get back on the Earth, right. um, which can be quite dangerous when your heart um, your heart muscle shrinks. Even, um, after, quite, yeah, and, uh, yes, even yeah. after a few months only, it's uh, people yes. have trouble walking and staggering a bit. And their colleagues help them, of course. Um, Dr. Sue, when is the next expansion of the space station programmed? Next expansion? Yes. We've got, we've got a, a certain one. We've got the components. The various mm -hmm. elements are put together already. Um, mm -hmm. Is it going to be, remain that size? Or I, I under the impression it's going to get bigger. Yeah, definitely. It's going to be bigger, but uh, maybe. You know, there is no a fixed time scale for the expansion of the uh, tank on space station, but I, I think the pace will be really fast in the coming years. Right, and I'm earlier, uh, um, uh, Doctor Doctor Webb. Um, I was we were talking about uh, testing uh, relativity. Um, what about uh, mm -hmm. other other experiments that will be carried out? I mean, I mentioned uh, they may even probe into the origins of life. I mean, that must be quite difficult, right? Oh, absolutely. I think any type of experiment that happens in microgravity is inherently difficult because it is such a foreign environment. And I think when it comes to trying to understand how life evolved and formed, um, microgravity is really interesting because we can look at those microbials, the very, very basic life forms, and understand how they work in microgravity. There's, there's a theory that life could be prevalent in the universe. Um, there's a theory called permspermia where life can migrate from, say, asteroids or other planets and, and microbes could survive in theory. Again, very much a theory. Um, but the idea is, well, if they are able to survive in microgravity and increased radiation and all of the other things that come with space, then potentially we could see life elsewhere in our solar system. All right. And uh, Dr. Webb, I, I know you need to go very soon. Just one final question. Um, China has sent its uh, first civilian to space in its uh, latest space mission. mission. Uh, what do you hope to see next from uh, China's uh, space development? Yeah, I, I'm really excited to see the first civilian. I believe that the, in the new range of astronauts, we'll see more and more civilians going up to space. Um, I'm quite excited to see the progression of um, the, the returning to the moon, or at least China's first attempt to get to the moon by 2030. I think that is a very ambitious goal. Um, however, a very uh, interesting and noble one as we see other nations and other programs aiming to, to just go back to the moon. I think it's a technological challenge, but one that will undoubtedly give us many, many engineering feats that we can use back here down on Earth as well. All right, so Dr. Webb, thanks again for joining us this morning. And that's uh, Dr. Sarah Webb, research astrophysicist at Australia's Swinburne University of Technology. Now, uh, Professor Parker, what do you think? I mean, just now, uh, Dr. <laughs> Webb, she's talking about uh, um, China's uh, aim to go to the moon is, uh, is ambitious. Yes, well, just a comment first about uh, the doctor, following on from uh, Dr. Xu Bing's uh, sure. comments about the growth in the Chinese space station. I mean, they have sort of said that they're going to send up a new node module and change the current T configuration into an X cross configuration as part of what will clearly be a greater expansion. And uh, this uh, new node, it's called a node module because it has other, lots of other docking ports on it. 
So basically, once that's in place, at 90 degrees to the current um, alignment of the, of, the, of the Chinese space station, they'll be able to grow it further, just like the International Space Station has grown over many years. So clearly, even though the original configuration is now complete, the plans are to add another node module and then other modules to it. So a few years from now, I wouldn't be surprised if the uh, CSS was not just 25% of the size of the ISS, but soon will be 50%, perhaps. Uh, and then also, there'll be more room, of course, with more experiments for larger numbers of crew, potentially. And, you know, it's 10 years from now. They're even talking about having tourists on the Chinese space station. So they'll all be civilians, I would imagine. Yes. What's the next big area, Professor Parker, that you would like to see some progress in? You mean, <laughs> that's a very, very big question. Um, uh, you a in big my canvas field, there. I'm an astrophysicist. Yeah. I'd like to see, of course, progress in our understanding of, of the way stars form and die, you know, the way uh, get rid of the tension in the Hubble constant and, you know, and carry on all the experiments uh, with cosmology and understanding the difference between dark energy and dark matter. So these are really fundamental and big questions generally for astrophysics. But in terms of um, space science and exploration, well, um, the Chinese are going to be launching next year something called the Space Station Telescope. So this is a two-meter class UV optical telescope, so similar to the Hubble Space Telescope that's still venerated and working beautifully, even though we've now got the James Webb Space Telescope, uh, six-meter near-infrared, uh, far-red optical telescope, that the Chinese uh, Hubble will actually have a field of view which is 300 times larger than the Hubble Space Telescope. So that's like a game-changer. That's suddenly like you're able to look at the universe, a Hubble Space Telescope telescope time type sensitivities and depths but three times 300 times more quickly that's a quantum that's a quantum <laughs> leap isn't it that's that's not just small incremental progress that's a huge jump well i mean it is i mean this is the thing about you know the chinese space program you know you you suddenly look at it and suddenly they've done something else amazing you know they they put the you know one of the changi missions they placed a rover and lander on the far side of the moon, which has never been done by any other nation. That is a very complicated mission. You need to have a relay, relay satellite in the L2 around the Earth-Moon Lagrangian point to be able to look at both the far side of the moon and the Earth simultaneously so you can send signals and instructions backwards and forwards. So it's actually a complicated mission, worked flawlessly. Mm -hmm. You know, they're only the third nation ever to bring back moon rock in a completely automated sample return. America did it, of course, with Apollo, brought back, uh, you know, I think 20 of kilograms or so at least of moon rock and the russians bought back i think it was about 300 grams with three different missions and the, the chinese went and did it a couple of years ago 1.7 kilograms sample return bang and then changi 6 is going to do the same so they can sample different parts of the moon's geology that hasn't been looked at before compared to you know, the lunar landers and go to different parts of the moon and look at the geology look at the 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 elements and and, and the kind of resources that might be available including water that's hidden there and so i think that's really exciting and so they're they're kind of doing it in leaps and bounds and as i said earlier it's taking quite a few of the Western observers by surprise, just the speed, but just the capacity and the success right. I think is taking Professor people Parker, by surprise. I think Dr. Sue wanted to, to add something. Yeah, yeah sure. exactly. Just, it just actually a follow-up comment on Professor Parker's viewpoint. So now, we were, we, we were just talking about the Central 16 mission. Actually, you know, this is the first time for us to send in, uh, to send a civilian astronaut to space. And actually, he's a professor at Beihan University, right? As a matter yes. of fact, his role, I mean, his role is a payload specialist, payload specialist. 
it is uh, he is responsible for operating payloads and space experiments. So, in my opinion, in the coming years, I, I think a trend of China's space mission will be gradually move on to um, scientific experiments like the telescope. Professor Parker just mentioned. So, in the future, we will put more firm, uh, excuse me, emphasis on scientific um, experiments as well as technical de demonstration of new aerospace technologies such as the new generation manned spacecraft for deeper space exploration such as lunar and Mars exploration. All right, and Dr. Su, so how, how likely will uh, um, future payload um, experts uh, be a Hong Konger in your well, view? Well, <clears throat> you know, um, the, the, the nation actually just studied recruiting payload specialists in Hong Kong last year, right? Mm -hmm. So as said by chief executives on Tuesday, there were more than 10 um, candidates from Hong Kong and Macau to be evaluated in June. So hopefully we will have a um, payload specialist from Hong Kong to be sent to space. I think it's quite, it's quite possible. It's, it, it, we, we will very likely to see that in the, coming, in the coming years, not very far away, in my opinion. Wow. That will be very exciting. I think everyone will yeah, be excited really by exciting. that. Yes. All right, uh, Dr. Su, I'm afraid uh, I have to stop you there because uh, we need to take a short news break. Thanks again for joining us this morning. That's uh, Su Bing, Research Assistant Professor at the Polytechnic University's Department of Aeronautical and Aviation Engineering. And uh, Professor Parker will continue our discussion after the news when we'll be joined by Professor Lam Hon Ming, Director of the Chinese University's Center for Soybean Research. Now, if you want to share your views on today's topics, you can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio. Three. Email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call on 233-88266. And uh, here's a quick look at the weather, mainly cloudy with a few showers, sunny intervals later with a top temperature of around 32 degrees. Winds light to moderate west to southwesterlies. And uh, right now, the thunderstorm warning is in effect. And uh, currently it's uh, 26 degrees, relative humidity 89%. <music> It's now 9.30 with a news summary. Here's Barry O'Rourke. The founder of Hong Kong Outdoors has welcomed a new app the police plan to launch at the end of the year, which will use AI technology to find missing hikers. Police say that hikers will be able to input the time, date and area of their activities into the HKSOS app, so AI can work out where to find them if they get lost. Martin Williams also questioned how the app could work if hikers couldn't get a phone signal. A conservationist says the popularity of water sports is hurting Hong Kong's coral population. Kelvin So, Ocean's Conservation Project Manager at WWF, says a survey it completed last year of the scuba diving community showed that many divers and snorkelers were unaware of their impact on coral. He said a new partnership between WWF and the Chinese University has allowed the group to scale up efforts to rescue coral from the ocean, nurture it in a laboratory and return it to the sea. And the U.S. House of Representatives has just passed a bipartisan bill to a deal to raise the government's debt ceiling and avoid a damaging default. The deal needed support from both Republicans and Democrats in the House to pass. We'll have more news for you at 10 o'clock. Results of the primary one central allocation will be sent to parents by post using door-to-door -door delivery service. Parents may also receive the results via SMS or through the e-platform. 
If you made your choices of schools on or before February 5th, you will receive the Primary One registration form on June 7th or 8th. Follow the instructions to register your child with the allocated school. If you have not received the form by June 9th, please call the Education Bureau at 2832-7700. Scammers are everywhere. If an unknown caller claims to be a law enforcement officer, even if they have your personal information, you should never transfer money or disclose your bank account information, especially any passwords. Some online scammers may pretend to be lovers and investment experts. At the beginning of the investment, you might earn a little, but the scammers will eventually take all your money. When in doubt, call the police anti-scam helpline, one 222 Welcome back. This is Back Chat on a Thursday morning with Mike Krauss and me, Janice Wong. Still with us on the program is Professor Quinton Parker, the Director of the University of Hong Kong Space Research Laboratory. And also joining us now is Professor Lam Hon Ming, Director of the Chinese University's Center for Soybean Research. Good morning, Professor Lam. Good morning. Thanks for joining us on the program. Um, so, Professor Lam, your soybean seeds were, were sent to space on board Shenzhou 16 on Tuesday as a part of Hong Kong's uh, first agricultural space research project. Um, can you explain to us in simple terms what you hope to find out? Okay, so uh, the space environment is very different from the Earth environment. So, uh, for example, so in the space, there will be uh, microgravity situations. And outside the spacecraft, there will be uh, special radiations. Uh, so we will try to examine how these uh, different environments will cause genetic changes in both the um, uh, seeds and also the uh, rhizobium, which is a bacteria that can fix nitrogen together with soybean. So we have two parts of experiments now up in the uh, space stations, and there will be uh, they will be there for half a year, receiving all these uh, environmental changes. And then when they return to the Earth, we will examine their genomic changes and performance. Hmm. This sounds very interesting. Uh, are there implications for this for agriculture on Earth? Yes, I think there are two um, major uh, considerations. So first is uh, we have to perform a lot of uh, different experiments in the Earth. So performing an experiment in, in the space station could bring some breakthrough that we cannot achieve on the Earth. So this is the immediate application is to see how we can further improve the rhizobium and the soybean seeds that we have generated. But the, but the longer term um, uh, research is we assume that in the future, human will travel to the space and even may build some space stations and for longer term um, research and, and travel. So it, uh, they, could, they will require to grow food themselves and also require to have soil to grow the plant. So bacteria and also the seeds are important. Wow. But how, how they change, right? So during the space travel, what kind of changes that uh, space environment you bring to them. We need to know better now before we can apply in the future. I suppose if you take a broad brush view here, which I hadn't up to now, but yes, if we have very long space missions, we need to grow food uh, on the way. Or, or you can build a station, say, in the, on the moon, right? You want to yes. have people staying there for a year, then you need to supply their own food in, yourself from the cargo ship. Right, so even if they're static, and not are not traveling they still need to otherwise you've got an enormous resupply pro problem yes, yes. 
All right. Professor Parker, um, what do you think of this project? I mean, and uh, how, um, how are other places uh, um, uh, testing this, this area? I think this is extremely important kinds of experiment. I mean, obviously, agriculture uh, on Earth is what keeps us alive as humans. And uh, with climate change, we might need to look at ways that our current crops need to be more hardy to drought and and resistant to um, infections from molds and attack by insects, as, you know, the very weird effects of climate change are just happening. Even today, you look at what's happening in in Canada with massive wildfires, unprecedented wildfires. And so this is going to be the new normal. So we've got to have uh, crops that that we can rely on and experiments in space that look at the genetic uh, impact of of exposure to radiation and to microgravity, etc., are important part of of the puzzle, I think. And so also, of course, when we need to perhaps one day survive off the Earth, either on Mars or on the Moon or elsewhere, and to be able to have um, um, products foodstuffs that we can grow locally wherever we might be, whether it's on board a space station or on the moon or on Mars or wherever, is really, really important. So you need to be able to develop and find uh, traits in in such uh, plants and seeds and, and, and organisms that can be of benefit and can survive the rigors of space. So I think this is incredibly important research. Right. And Professor Lam, this is um, part of Hong Kong's first agricultural space research project. Uh, what is this uh, project, in your view? What is it mean for Hong Kong's uh, research community? Yeah, so previously um, there are uh, research uh, in engineering and also uh, like telescope and other areas related to the space uh, research that was conducted by colleagues in Hong Kong. And uh, people will think like agriculture is something on the earth. How could it go to the space? So I think this is the breakthrough that we can join the most advanced technology in China, that is space technology, and the most leaded technology, the food security related research together. So that is a very important symbolic importance of cross-disciplinary research. Right. And also it uh, helped to um, bring a tighter relationship between the Hong Kong scientific uh, community to China scientific community and also as an example to illustrate to the younger students that we should think out of the box right that we can do cross-disciplinary research to solve real problems on on that line of thought um, you're the soybean man what other uh, products uh, would we be looking to experiment on in space yeah so, so I think there are much more uh, experiment can be done, right? Besides agriculture, I think there could be a lot of uh, medical research because uh, uh, astronauts need a lot of medical care. So I, I believe in the future, Hong Kong can launch other kinds of uh, space experiment, uh, agriculture, medical and environmental studies, or using that um, some sensors and telescopes to uh, study uh, Earth system science. So there's a big opportunity that ahead of us because uh, I believe China will send spacecraft to uh, the station every half a year. Right. So we should fight for chances that our scientists can join the, the tour uh, in the future. Right. Professor Lambert, why soybeans? 
。哦，所以 i n e is very important、uh, environmental, environmentally and also for super security because it provides the world's seventy percent of the plant protein and thirty percent of the plant oil. So it can supply nutrients to the communities that cannot afford meat as the protein source. And also,、uh, soybean can fix nitrogen, which is environmental friendly, but、uh, reducing the use of nitrogen fertilizer when they work together with rhizobium. So, in future, when we try to build、uh, a, a space station, we need to create our own organic nitrogen. So, soybean and together with rhizobium will provide this opportunity. All right, Professor Parker.、Um, do you have any idea what what other space programs are in other、uh, places are doing? Do they use soybeans as well, or do they test other agricultural、uh, crops? No, it's not really my area, as you know. I'm an astrophysicist,、yeah. but I I do, I do know that、uh, soybeans is one of the mainstays because of all the reasons that Professor just mentioned.、Uh, but there are other、uh, other other kinds of organisms, not just you know、uh, microbes. They've done. Uh, I think uh, Dr. Webb was talking about、uh, you know life and panspermia and microbes. And you know it's true that microbes are very very hardy, and they even put some outside the International Space Station to see how long they would survive as a colony. And in fact, they survive much longer than people possibly thought of, as the outside of the colony died to help keep the inner part of the colony alive. It's quite remarkable. So those kind of experiments on living organisms, not just plants, but also organisms and microbes, and you know even small creatures. And multi-celled organisms are are also being experimented on because we we don't just eat plants. You know, we can eat algae, which is a plant, of course, but we can also eat、um, things that are grown into meat, like they're doing in labs here on Earth. So、uh, <laughs> there's all sorts of things that need to sustain the human body, and and plants are also very extremely important. But for a varied diet to get all the kinds of minerals and and vitamins and things you need, that needs to be varied. So you need to look into a variety of different、uh, organisms and plants that can sustain you in space in the long term. All right, and. Uh, Professor Parker, let's、uh, move back to an area you're more familiar with.、Um, when we look at、uh, China's space program in general, how does it compare with uh, um, the ambitions, for example, of、uh, the US, EU, and even、uh, the, the private sector like、uh, SpaceX that、uh, just had one of its、uh, spacecraft、uh, return safely to Earth? Yes, SpaceX is remarkable, and you know that they had that、uh, failed mission、uh, a week or two ago. But it wasn't a failure in in a sense that they learnt a lot, and that's what you can do with commercially. If you've got deep pockets, you can afford to you know have failures and learn quickly from them. If that was a an, a state organisation like NASA, you'd be much more careful before you even launch the thing. Adds lots of delay, so you can learn quickly if you have deep pockets, and and that's what、uh, Elon Musk is doing. So that's the private sector going gangbusters in some senses. You senses you've got America. Of course, with Artemis program to the moon and European, mustn't forget the Europeans are very strong space program. Not only they're excellent in satellites,、uh, design, development, and launching, but they've got Ariane rockets. So the, the rocket was used to send the James Webb Space Telescope out was not an American rocket; it was a, a European rocket, Ariane. And so you know, there's a and India is now developing a very strong homegrown、uh, space program. So the world over, you've got senior and, and, and major countries.、Uh, Going ahead with with ambitious space programs, but I think the standout for me, especially in terms of almost from a standing start to where you are today, has been the Chinese space program, and that's a real standout. So they're on the par now; they're a peer of America and Russia and uh, and uh, Europeans now. Now, well, so far, most of the people being sent into space、uh, have been military personnel,、mm. um, which kind of brings in this whole question of、uh, whether there are going to be clashes. Out of this world, do we have、uh, enough treaties in place to maintain peace? Well, 
you know, what I think there's more of what goes on on the ground here is going to be much more important than what could possibly go on in space. But, you know, the beat up over the militarization of space is coming from one direction only. Um, I believe if you look at the Chinese white paper on its intent in space, you look at what they're doing in space now, um, it's clearly uh, intended around research scientific advancement for the benefit it says of all of humanity if you read their white paper i mean the only country with the space force is america um you know in the early days of space flight when there was the depths of the cold war of course you had militarization to some degree you've always got spy satellites up there american spy satellites russian spy satellites european spy satellites and undoubtedly chinese spy satellite that's what every country does while it can uh, to try to understand what the other countries might be doing. So this is a kind of normal behavior, if you will. But in terms of uh, fighting up there, um, you know, there's talk of, uh, you know, uh, Russians and the Americans and the Chinese have crashed satellites into other satellites uh, to see if they can take a satellite out. But of course, it's all very well. But um, the debris it creates is becoming existential to the actual population of low Earth orbit. There's something called the Kessler syndrome, where if the debris field gets too extensive, Every bit of objects keeps knocking into other objects, and all of a sudden, all the satellites get taken out by a massive cascade of debris that goes through uh, low Earth orbit and destroys everything. So that we're getting close to that, and we're, you know, with Elon Musk adding all this Starlink, hundreds and thousands of satellites planned, this is a really serious problem, right. is accounting for space debris. What can we do to clean up the space debris? Very, very good question. And in fact, you know, uh, this is exercising some of the most brilliant uh, engineers and scientists around the world now to try to solve the problem of space debris. It's not easy. You've got hundreds of millions of small pieces, you know, a tiny piece, the fleck of paint almost took out the window of the space shuttle some years ago. And that's because of the energy in that particle. It's a tiny particle, doesn't weigh much, but it's traveling at enormous relative speeds. And, you know, with kinetic energy being half mv squared, the v squared is huge. M is small, but the energy is enormous. And, you know, so there's been some quite near misses. You know, just a, a year or so ago, a small particle of debris went through the robot arm of the International Space Station. You know, something went through them. You know, if that went through the main body of the space station, it could have created an enormous problem and been a threat to, to the inhabitants. So, you know, it is a serious issue. And there's all sorts of uh, technologies being looked at from laser ablation to nets to grappling arms and all sorts. But it's not an easy problem to solve. It'll take a while. Right. But it is true that the major spacefaring powers are now trying to say that everything we send up now must have some way of coming back down to Earth and burning up. Right. Uh, Professor Parker, I mean, I asked uh, Dr. Sue before the news uh, that the same question, <laughs> well, looking at the pace of uh, development of uh, the China space program. How mm. long do you think it will take before we can send uh, a Hong Kong uh, to space? Very good question. I mean, the uh, final selection is happening, as was said, and, you know, we had a 100-odd applicants whittled down to 40, 20 men, 20 women, now whittled down to just over 10. I don't know how many of them from Hong Kong and how many of them might be from Macau. You could look at a pro rata on population, or you could just say one each or something like that. I don't know. We'll have to wait and see what the final selection is. But once you're selected, you then go through uh, a training program at last uh, a few years. It can't be more than six, because if you look at the current uh, civilian that's just gone up uh, from China. Um, he was doing his postdocs in 2017. It's only now 2023. So, you know, he was an associate professor of the university, then entered the, the space program uh, a while later, and now he's in space. So, two or three years, three years from now, we could be looking at uh, a Chinese Titanaut. Maybe a little more, but, uh, you know, three years plus. Would you like to go? Well, um, if I was younger, I'd be very keen. You know, I'd be applying. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> Professor Lamb, how about you? 
Well, yes, the same, right? So I believe that our younger generation will do a better job. So we will train more scientists, and I believe that scientists will be very useful in this in the space station to conduct all kinds of experiments. All right, uh, Dr. Lam, uh, we'll have to leave it here for now. Thanks again for joining us this morning, and that's uh, Professor Lam Hon Ming, director of the Chinese University's Center for Soybean Research. Many thanks also to uh, Professor Quentin Parker, the director of the University of Hong Kong's Space Research Laboratory. It's now nine forty-seven, and in a moment we'll find out more about how WWF. Hong Kong and the Chinese University are working together to help revive Hong Kong's coral communities. 95 years of public service broadcasting. Stay tuned with Hong Kong. Hello, I'm Michael Wong, the Deputy Financial Secretary. For the past 95 years, our THK has shared a common journey with Hong Kong people. Going forward, I trust that our THK will continue to provide Hong Kong with more programs that are rich in content and that can move our hearts. 95 years of public service broadcasting. 95 years. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. With Hong Kong. You're listening to Backchat. Call us on 233-88-266 and have your say. WWF Hong Kong and the Chinese University have joined forces to launch a new initiative called Reviving Our Corals to demonstrate the positive impacts of coral conservation and raise awareness about coral restoration. To tell us more about it, we're joined on the line now by Kelvin So, Project Manager for Oceans Conservation at WWF Hong Kong. Good morning, Mr. So. Good morning. Thanks Thank for joining for us. Thanks for joining us on the program. Um, can you first tell us uh, what you'll be doing to help revive the coral communities in Hong Kong? Okay. Um, so our partnership uh, with the Chinese University of Hong Kong began with a pilot coral restoration project. So um, following the positive response from um, the pilot project, we extended our pilot uh, coral restoration project into a long-term partnership program. So actually, just uh, two days ago, um, the signing of uh, a memorandum of understanding between WWF Hong Kong and the Chinese University of Hong Kong marked a significant milestone in the efforts to restore degraded coal communities in Hong Kong. So under the new coal conservation initiative called Refining Our Corals, um, we aim to demonstrate the positive impacts of coal conservation and raise awareness about coal restoration. So um, the partnership with CHK is an um, integral part of this initiative as it allows to scale up their research work, bring back corals, and restore key marine habitats. So this collaboration is an important step towards addressing a vital marine conservation issue and demonstrate how nature-based solutions can address biodiversity loss and climate change adaptation. Why is, why is restoring these corals important? In... In, uh, well, in terms of uh, the health of the seas, why, why is it important to restore these corals? Okay, um, so because um, um, our project site, our restoration site is in Tolo Harbour and Channel. Right. So um, actually the decline of coral species in Tolo Harbour and Channel is mainly due to um, uh, the 80s, 1980s. There is um, a massive urban development in the area. So... Um, Actually, corals, they are once were home to many diverse corals, more than 30 coral species. So actually, coral communities are the marine habitat to support the whole marine biodiversity in Hong Kong. 
Right. It, it's because they provide shelter for a fish. Mm. For supporting the whole marine biodiversity. Right, yeah. which yeah, is Hong important. Where are the main corals in the Hong Kong waters? Um, um, in Hong Kong waters, uh, the main coral communities are located in the eastern part of Hong Kong. Um, so actually from northeastern to the southeastern, so the whole eastern area is the uh, coral community distribution. It's Saikong down to Po Toi. Yeah, yeah, Saikong, yeah. All right, so, so what is the um, general, the, uh, the, the coral coverage rate in Hong Kong? Oh, so uh, for the general, um, although um, I would say the overall situation of the coral coverage remains uh, concerning because uh, why comparing with the reef trap we saw from 2018 to 2023, so uh, corals at uh, 17 out of 33 um, surface sites, um, around 51% of the sites were found to have a decreased coral coverage trend. So it so that some sites have been an increase in coral coverage while others have experienced a decline. Indicating, indicating that uh, there is still much work to be done to protect and restore Hong Kong coral coverage. Um, yeah. All right, and you talked about uh, your this uh, reviving our corals uh, project. Um, you said it started off as a pilot project, and now you've decided to uh, uh, make it a, into a, like a long-term kind of uh, project. Um, so the pilot project must have been a pretty successful for for you to decide to make this a long-term project. Um, can you tell us about the pilot project and what did it actually achieve? Oh, um, so actually, uh, we have trained uh, the citizen scientists to conduct uh, underwater surveys and collect damaged coral fragments So, um, uh, in underwater, of course. So the coral fragments were then brought back to um, the Chinese University of Hong Kong, Simon F.S. Lee Marine Science Laboratory, and transferred it to a platform set up by CHK on the seabed. So of the 40 rescued coral fragments during the pilot project, 39 survived indicating that um, the efficiency of the restoration process. Following um, the positive response from these uh, activities, so that's why we extend our pilot project into a long-term partnership. Right. So Hong Kong's amateur divers have been participating in this? Yeah, yeah. We recruit the uh, public diver uh, from the scuba diving communities. So uh, in the upcoming refining uh, uh, Our Coast initiative, we hope to scale up this kind of pilot project into a uh, VRT project, and then we hope to restore um, um, uh, the research team of CHK will rescue, nurture, and alpha at least 1,000 coral fragments in under these three years um, refining Our Coast initiative. Now you explained that the first step was Tolo Harbour because of the uh, a lot of development there, mm. uh, which threw a lot of stress on the corals. What other areas have got a, pro a, a, a coral problem, so to speak? So um, uh, we need to talk about a little bit on the Tolo Harbour history. So in the 1980s, so the urban reclamation and the growing uh, human population lead to an increase in agriculture. Uh, factory and industrial activities that result in a discharge of organic sewage into the water stream. So this leads to excessive nutrient levels in the water, which cause a pollution gradient, uh, frequent uh, eutrophication and algal bloom. So the marine environment and ecosystem were severely impacted, result in a significant decline in coral species. They once were uh, home to many diverse corals, more than 30 uh, coral species with over 80% coral coverage in North Reef 
in a, a, a small island in Tolo Harbor and Channel. So um, although um, the government noticed this kind of problem, so they implement um, Tolo Harbor action plan in 1990s significantly improved the water quality. But however, there have been no signs of natural recovery of corals. Um, nowadays, uh, from the uh, CHK's recent research, Polo Harbor's coral coverage has fallen to less than 2%, threatening its place as one of the Hong Kong's most important spawning and nursery grounds for the juvenile of many marine species. Right. And this previously, a lot of damage was done by agricultural waste? Mm. Yeah, yeah, uh, especially for the pickery, pickery right. industry, yeah. But also chickens, but to a lesser extent. Yeah, uh, pardon? Also chickens, not just pigs. Uh, yeah, chicken, yeah, yeah, of course, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The agriculture industry, yeah, right. because they discharge their uh, organic sewage into the sea. Directly. Yes, into the streams and uh, into the sea. Yeah. Have we done enough uh, to stop those uh, agricultural developments? So because uh, the government uh, noticed this problem, as I said, so um, that's why they implement the Tolo Harbor Action Plan um, so, um, to improve the water quality. But uh, it's clear that um, the natural recruitment of coral um, is not sufficient to restore back the damage that damaged the coral communities. Right. So yeah, once destroyed, it's very difficult for coral communities to recover. So how, how can we help them recover? It's not so, happening naturally. Um, um, so, uh, for the, um, so there are two common um, coral restoration approach to restore the corals back. Currently, most efforts in coral restoration have focused on using accessible propagation by using corals of opportunity, so the coral fragments um, detached from the living hard coral fragments, and then we just uh, put it back. But however, this approach relies uh, heavily on the availability of existing coral fragments from natural environment and is limited by the genetic diversity of the source fragments. So that's why we cooperate with uh, CHK Coral Academy, led by Dr. Appletree, because their team's expertise is mainly investigating uh, effective coral nursery and coral propagation techniques. Her team has be, uh, have been exploring different approaches to uh, open the corals in Hong Kong. In addition to using sexually propagated corals, the team conducted um, a study using sexually propagated juveniles of Sai Hong corals for outpunting. So these juvenile corals um, were uh, were cultured in the coral nursery uh, at the uh, laboratory until they reached the suitable size of around 2 cm and then they will outplant two years later. So, and the um, regular monitoring after the outplanting so that these coral has a high survival ship wow. uh, in Tolo Harbor and Channel. Understood. Do artificial reefs help the coral to recover? Wow, that's a good question. Um, exploring the use of rag reefs or even artificial reefs in Hong Kong is a complex, complex issue that requires careful consideration and proper management practice. Um, because um, while artificial reefs can provide substrate for coral growth and attract um, different kinds of marine organisms, but they may not be able to um, the complex ecosystem that exists in natural coral communities or coral reefs. So although there are many effective 
example in worldwide. But um, I would say Hong Kong, uh, if Hong Kong were to explore the use of artificial reef, it would need to be done with careful consideration of the potential drawbacks and with proper management practice uh, by the Hong Kong government because of the risk of marine litter and inter- uh, interference with existing marine activities. All right. And just finally, Mr. So, what can we do? I mean, when we go out uh, to the sea, for example, in Hoi Ha. What, what can we do? So, um, just very briefly. Yeah, um, I think um, uh, the first thing we need to raise the public awareness, we need to at least we need to know what is corals. Because in Hong Kong, most of the corals... All right, uh, Mr. So, I'm afraid we're out of time. Yeah. We have to leave it here for uh, now. Thanks again for joining us this morning. That's uh, Kelvin So, Project Manager for Oceans Conservation at WWF Hong Kong. Many thanks also to you who commented or emailed us today and to our guest presenter, Mike Rouse and producer Raphael. From the bottom uh, of the sea to outer space. <laughs> yep, I'll be back again tomorrow.